Whoa, Greg. Woe is unto be us us poor Patriots fans. Yes. Boo Eagles boo. That's that's yes. my chant. Take that. A pox Eagles on fans. thee. A pox on thee. The, yeah. the filth of Philadelphia, I say. <laughs> John, remember one year ago we were relishing uh, another spectacular Super Bowl victory? Of um, course. And it seemed like they were setting it up for us again. Because, <laughs> you know, like with 40 seconds left, you know, they have 100 yards and 8 points to score. I was like, all right, the Patriots got this. And no, <laughs> they let us down. John, I, I admire your faith in that situation. I know. However, after the strip sack, I was just, uh, forget it. Hmm. It was a hard-fought game. Um, for some reason, Bill Belichick... Uh, benched Malcolm Butler. Um, that means nothing to nobody in about 48 hours, but you know, again, for Pats fans, we'll, we'll, we'll get, you know what, we'll get over it. It's fine. I'm, I'm more upset that we lost to the dreaded city of Philadelphia. You've gone on record as a, as a Philly hater. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, Philadelphia fans, no mm-hmm. disrespect, but you are the scum of the earth. And... <laughs> Oh, I, I say that with tons of your city of is trash. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is trash. I mean, you've you've seen the little Twitter videos of how they reacted, <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's that's pretty much appropriate. Exactly. If anything, they should rub their streetlights in Crisco all year round, because <laughs> you never know when a riot's going to break. Exactly. Up. Yeah, and should just have they should just have ants crawling over the city because that's what they deserve, really. No, <laughs> not that we're bitter or anything. Anyway, John. no. To add insult to injury, then I also watched the Cloverfield Paradox immediately afterwards, so <laughs> it was just a horrible night all around. Well, John, should we save that for our spotlight section? Spotlight. 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 Spot- no. No, let's not. Because <laughs> spotlight's for good movies. <laughs> but, John, I mean, the the instant, you know, advertisement, a surprise release always works out for the best. I mean, it's no, not like yeah. they just... I mean, it's it's obviously in the same league as a barely lethal in the other movies that have gone straight to Netflix. <laughs> of course, usually when they surprise you with the advertising and they just dump it, like that's a sign of quality. Absolutely. So clearly, you know, the Cloverfield Paradox was going to be the stellar movie of the year, following Bright. <laughs> well, I was more stunned by the the cast, including uh, Daniel Bruhl, David Aiello. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, is Paul Rudd in there or something? I don't know. Oh no, uh, no Chris O'Dowd, the Irish. Yeah, guy. Chris O'Dowd is there. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to get into it because okay. there's no yeah there's just, there's nothing done. to get into. <laughs> yes, there's there's not much to think about. <laughs> okay, but John, how does it tie back to John Goodman's character? Monsters. <laughs> when he locked poor Mary Elizabeth Winstead in that bunker. They flip the switch and monsters up here. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So it brings all three movies together, <laughs> and then and then monsters. Okay. And then and then someone's arm falls off. Ooh. And it's never brought up again. I saw. Okay, <laughs> that's good to hear. Yep, I love. Uh, you know, just remember, if you have a script that you don't know how to market, just throw Cloverfield in the title, and it doesn't matter. Shh, John, Making movies is easy. John, that's a brilliant idea. I'm going to go do that actually right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've got a touching coming of age story about a uh, white kid growing up in Boston. <laughs> Um, that will interest that it, that was literally written for an audience of one. However, I'm going to stick Cloverfield in there. <laughs> they say right he's going to look know. up to a sky. Uh, he looks up to a sky while some twinkly uh, piano plays and and maybe some strings, discordant strings, like eh, and then boom, the Cloverfield upbringing or something. Ex- hold on, excuse me. Yeah, <laughs> you say Mean Streets of Boston. You grew up in fancy pants Melrose. Who this are you is, trying to fool? Okay, <laughs> John, you nailed me there. John, you got yep. me. Nailed him. I know, yeah. I, I'm sorry, yeah. Like, Matt Damon also grew up on the mean streets of Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> There's some bad parts of Cambridge. It can't all be Harvard. I do. No, that's, no, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Not yeah. so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, man, we're we're getting off on the wrong foot. We're t- we're talking too real here. Everything's John, getting too real. No, I, f- I feel like we're on the exact right foot. The exact really? proper foot, yeah. To talk about the 99%. Uh, to talk about um, those... People and that if society has unfortunately forgotten and neglected. Oh dear! It's like it's like we're past realism and we're into neo-realism. <laughs> it's reborn. Great transition. Good one. Yes. I'm for so anybody, nervous. yeah, for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, it's generally regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. Bicycle Thieves. Here again, 
is Vittorio De Sica's greatest triumph and most famous film, The Bicycle Thief. This is the film found on every 10 best list for a quarter of a century, having captured every honor the world of film can bestow, including an Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay and the coveted Oscar for the Best Foreign Film. All right, first point of contention, the title. Because with a title like Bicycle Thieves and the opening scene, which makes a big point that this guy finally gets a job that's reliant mm-hmm. on his bicycle, I'm like, you idiot, watch your bike, okay? <laughs> Bad things are going to happen. Don't you realize you're in a movie called Bicycle Thieves? <laughs> well, we'll get the little teases and little notes. I mean, I'm sure audiences were walking in, and yeah, when our, our lead character named Antonio Ricci you know, does leave his bike, you're, you're just waiting, like, oh no, when is his bike going to get stolen? And his life just yes. crumbles. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, that's the plot of the movie, yeah. FYI. Uh, mm-hmm. There's uh, Antonio Ricci. He's trying to support his family. He finally gets a chance to get a job hanging posters. The only problem is he, he gets handed. Yeah, he gets handed this job because we're in a socialist Italy right now, post post World War II. Things aren't exactly going great right now. No, and uh, he gets lucky enough to get this job, but unfortunately, he requires a bike to actually do it. And sadly, he just pawned his bike so they could actually afford food. <laughs> so um, they have to trade in their sheets so he can buy his bike back. And then everything turns out fine. And he gets his job and he gets to his, feeds his family and everything turns out great. No, of course not, John. His bike gets stolen and he has to tra- traverse Rome like a needle in, uh, finding a needle in a haystack. He and his son have to find his bike so that he can mm-hmm. preserve his job and maintain uh, his family and not succumb to poverty and starvation. Exactly. Yeah. So this and is just a, a brilliant portrait of human suffering. <laughs> I will admit the movie is kind of brilliant. It's it's a really well done movie, isn't it? I mean, lists that that distinction very clearly. One of the greatest films of all time. I do regard this as possibly one of the greatest films of all time. Um, maybe not like you know up there as a personal favorite, but still in terms of the effectiveness of the message and exactly what director Vittorio De Sica is trying to say. Again, it does it does an A plus 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 job. Well, so I was afraid I wasn't going to enjoy it much because again that uh, label kept coming up, uh, neo realism, mm-hmm. and I thought for sure like, well, this movie's so old, like what is realistic compared <laughs> to like a nineteen forty six audience? But it really does kind of work at the pace of life, and again, it's shot really in Rome in real locations, and it does feel very immediate and very genuine. Yeah, with and amateur it, actors. Mm-hmm. Giving the, literally the performance of a lifetime because we talk about Antonio Ricci played by an amateur named mm-hmm. Lamberto Magarini who was an amateur like every uh, every person in this cast is an amateur mm-hmm. and just you could see like the the amount of distress in his face and how much it immediately registers I mean that's that's another brilliant point of the movie is the casting they somehow mm-hmm. get like even his son and his wife his son is play, is named Bruno and he's played by again just a little kid who was out on the street his name's Enzo Citolia or something like that um, mm-hmm. again i apologize <laughs> we apologize for our <laughs> terrible pronunciation <laughs> and so it like again but you know we see these like wide eyes and just even though the film's not silent it's shot in black and white and it feels it does feel like it's it's of this this period but again you can immediately see the power in their faces and the desperation they have in this situation and it's also uh, especially poignant because, again, most of the movie you do kind of see through the child's eyes and you kind of see, like, the weight of the world kind of fall on him because as the movie opens, he's kind of, like, innocent and free and happy and then you see, like, what his father is capable of in order to survive <laughs> and what his father kind of goes through. And it's just, it's really sad, like, watching the child kind of experience that. Yeah, that's one thing... So I rewatched it. This is a film school special. This is required film uh, viewing in film school. And actually, I wanted to bring up one extraordinary coincidence, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, cast your mind back to 2010. Okay. And the the internet can verify this. Um, I am in my senior year. <laughs> the Black Eyed Peas just came out with Ella Funk. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. cultural touchstone yes <laughs> and and the young man your humble host is a senior in college mm-hmm. he's finishing up his la- one of his last film courses and he's required to view bicycle thieves he gets it out of the library he takes a sunday afternoon he sits down and watch it and then he goes to see a super he goes to the super bowl party and he goes to see <gasps> drew Brees' saints take on peyton manning's colts oh dear yes and since i was new to twitter i thought i'd commemorate this by saying hey 
internet. I'm watching Bicycle Thieves, this highfalutin movie, or at least what I thought was highfalutin. <laughs> and now I'm going into the uh, a vulgar celebration of American excess, the Super Bowl. You know, how amazing am I? And so I thought I'd commemorate this on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought I'd be the only person watching Bicycle Thieves followed by the Super Bowl uh, in human history. That is until <laughs> eight years later, almost to the day, you you replicate, my twin brother replicates that exact same feat. <sighs> I mean, it took me a very long time, but, you know, destiny has a, is a long and winding path. And really, yes. it, it could only end up this way. Really? Yes. <laughs> but anyway, let's get back to the original point. You brought up this seeing it through, from the son's point of view. This is actually the first time I've seen it mm-hmm. since I was in college. And what I've, upon this reviewing, what, I've, what was remarkable to me is actually how unsympathetic and unlikable that father figure is. Well, um, I mean, it, he's you kind of understand where he's coming from. Obviously, it doesn't excuse his behavior, but you understand he's acting out of desperation. I guess so, yeah. I'm thinking of some scenes in particular that are, again, really necessary to another big, important overall theme. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the perfect example of kind of his suffering is um, he th- they've lost an old man who was a key, who was a key witness to this bicycle theft. Mm-hmm. And so he leaves his son behind. He's frustrated. He goes down by the river. He tells his son to kind of wait on the bridge by the river. And then there's commotion that, oh, no, a boy's drowning in the river. Mm-hmm. And so immediately you think, with your movie expectations, you immediately think, oh, no, uh, Richie's son is now drowning in the river. And he rushes back. Um, it turns out to be another boy. Yeah. And so uh, that's not only, again, like indicative of how neglectful he is as a father, but also kind of the broader theme. And I also wanted your thought on thoughts on this and that. Like, not only is he unsympathetic, but also the movie makes very clear that he's not the only person suffering. Exactly. This is a whole society well, that's also, suffering. Also, yeah, and also you're burying the lead because what's the one thing that happens between Antonio and Bruno before that? Oh, you're right. Yes, Antonio also, gets so pissed off, and Bruno kind of gets, like, so frustrated as well that Antonio slaps Bruno. He beats his kid. Mm-hmm. And he never apologizes for this, but he, again, like the drowning kid makes him take stock and realize that how important his son is to him. And there's this nice release of tension when he's like, "Hey, you want to go get some food? Let's go. Let's go get drunk. Let's go. Let's go get a pizza. Let's go." <laughs> and you know, they he spends what little meager money he has left, which really he should not be spending, to take the kid out for a mozzarella sandwich. And you yeah, know, gives or, him some wine, and you know they're they're watching the band play, and you know it's like a brief to moment. indulge in a meal, yeah, that he shouldn't really be indulging in. Exactly, and it's a brief moment of happiness before they realize like we can't afford this. We're not <laughs> we're, this. This is not going to work out well for us. No, no, we can't. Um, it's kind of one of these philosophical points. The movie is really kind of allegorical and a fable. Mm-hmm. Um, again, these these are. It's it is very realistic. However, there's kind of it does kind of paint with a broad brush in terms of uh, this man and this family kind of uh, suffering inside uh, post-war Italy. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this is kind of the philosophical point. Like, well, we're going to go to nihilism and indulgence instead. Like, it's kind of that, at that point in the story. <laughs> Good, fair point. Fair point. Yeah. And so, I, I if one of the very few like weak points in the movie, I think is is then. Um, because it does feel like we're we're kind of hitting beats in uh-huh. terms of you know whereas like again like the like the little twist oh it's not his actual son who's who's drowning in that scene in that scene prior it's it, again it's it's really illuminating the theme that you know again this man's not suffering alone this is this these problems are endemic to society but also like those those little unexpected twists because as you can see you can also kind of anticipate his his uh, de-evolution into um, <laughs> Into kind of behavior that is driven by this desperation caused by society. Yeah. Well, spoiler alert, the movie is called Bicycle Thieves, plural. <laughs> so that should give you a little hint of foreshadowing. Yeah. And I still can confirm the Italian. I, I have an Italian co-worker. Um, oh, okay. As in a co-worker, like, literally from Italy. Not just not like a... <laughs> Not like the situation. I can or picture him now. That hey Gino, <laughs> how about some pizza, spaghetti? Forget about it. No, he grew up uh, just outside Milan. He's a genuine Italian, oh, okay. and even he couldn't confirm. Like again, he just calls it, you know, Lecce di Bicicletti or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't. So they can never quite confirm what exactly it should be in English. Whether it's the bicycle thief, bicycle thieves. Um, mm. It really should be called bicycle theft. I think maybe. Yeah, but. maybe. Okay, maybe that's the better title for it. <laughs> 
No, but Bicycle Thieves, I think, is also a, an apt title because it is really about society. And, you know, it, there was another kind of poignant scene where he confronts the, who he accuses of actually stealing his bike. Mm-hmm. And um, his neighborhood, whatever neighborhood they're in, actually rushes to the... It's a young boy. And the neighborhood they're actually in actually rushes to the young boy's defense. Mm-hmm. And the young boy turns out has like epilepsy or something like that and the stress of Mm -hmm. just being accused kind of makes him go into a a bit of a seizure um which i also kind of like the ambiguity of that scene because it's like yes the town kind of comes together yes antonio doesn't really have a foot to stand on and he could wildly be just accusing anybody of stealing his bike but also it's like they could be getting the better of him as well because like there's no Mm. proof that the kid isn't faking it (laughs) (laughs) maybe uh Again, I, I, I think this movie does a, a, an exceptional job of kind of like bringing empathy out of you. So mm-hmm. every character, like I kind of see their side of it and, and don't, my wall of cynicism kind of falls in, in a moment like this, particularly with his mother. We're also introduced to this uh, accused boy's mother. Mm-hmm. We, see, we see the stress in her life. She has to look after her other three children in addition to her, her epileptic son. So Yeah, and they all share one room as opposed to, you know, the by comparison, grand apartment that Antonio lives in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't call it grand, but <laughs> yeah, at least they have different rooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, again, what I what I love most about the movie, though, is that it, it really does kind of illuminate uh, an ordinary life and kind of make it feel extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the neo-realism comes in, mm-hmm. because I, in, a, in a great contrast, the posters that uh, Antonio has to actually put up or of uh reed hayworth mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the most glamorous stars in hollywood and yeah you know during the war what hollywood was churning out was really escapist fair like stuff to, to kind of like help audiences escape the trials of the world mm-hmm. and it wasn't until the late 40s when this movie came out like uh again we'll point out some other movies like the best years of our lives um this filmmaker DeSica's previous film was called shoe shine about two shoe shining boys it wasn't until then that we're kind of seeing you know ordinary life kind of blown up to these proportions and, and kind of putting a magnifying glass on them. Yeah. And again, for we, we, we talk about this quite frequently on the podcast. We talk about like the stakes, like yeah. whether a, a movie is a story worth telling. And this movie, again, kind of hyper-focused on one particular family, on one particular guy's struggle. It can seem kind of small, but that's what kind of makes it work is it's so intimate. Oh, yeah. And again, that I think that's a credit to the filmmaking and these close-ups, and also the casting, and just getting these actors like really kind of intoning that the, the gravity of the situation just with their faces alone. Mm-hmm. There's also a kind of a small thematic underpinning, which is about like kind of the role of religion in people's lives as well. <laughs> that's something I, I think I missed on my first viewing, and yeah. I wanted to bring it up mm-hmm. <laughs> because there is some uh, nods to kind of spiritual thought and exactly where these characters fit into the larger world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we should probably explain it's it's brought up in two scenes in particular. The first is uh, Antonio's wife wanting to go visit a fortune teller. Mm-hmm. And, or pay her, yeah, yeah. and pay her for, you know, services rendered. She yeah. basically went to the, her and was like, do you think my husband will get this job? And he's like, maybe, maybe not. And she still, <laughs> she didn't get, she didn't pay her at the time, but now she wants to kind of give her credence. Mm-hmm. What I like is that Antonio's immediately skeptical of this. Mm-hmm. He's like, why are you wasting our money and our time on this? Yeah. <laughs> like, she had nothing to do with the fact that I got this yeah, job. Yeah, like the soothsayer or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in great contrast, like, Antonio later in his in his hour of need actually does go to this lady. Mm-hmm. And desperately, like, can you tell my fortune? Like, will I get my bike back? Mm-hmm. And again, she gives him an, an equally ambiguous answer. And so that's what I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on, <laughs> is whether this this movie has kind of a uh, a good or bad take on faith <laughs> well also again you talked about the key scene where he's trying to badger this old man out of information where does yeah. that scene take place <laughs> in a church it takes place at mass when they're also serving the needy in the community exactly and the whole point of that scene is all he cares about is getting this guy to talk and he doesn't mm-hmm. care about how much he's interrupting the service he doesn't care about you know like causing everyone else distress again he only cares about his needs Mm -hmm. and again it shows it's another nice little character moment where it shows that this guy is like he's very earthly he's very much like not concerned about spiritual matters all he cares about is what am i going to do to feed my family what am i going to do to get money he's very you know concerned with earthly possessions and 
I don't know if the movie kind of, again, I love that ambiguity, the movie doesn't really fall one way or the other, because on the one hand, you go back to the soothsayer. You know, is she scamming people? Kind of. (laughs) She's basically like taking their money and then giving them no answers. But at the same time, she's also giving them the most appropriate answer, which is, (laughs) I have no answer for you. I can't tell you. Like again, it would be she would be a real charlatan if she was like, "I guarantee you're going to be fine. You're going to get that money. You're going to get that job, and everything's going to be awesome." But yeah. no, instead she's completely honest. It's like you could find the bike, you could not find the bike. What, what am I going to say? You're going to find the bike? Come on, the bike could be. You're going to either find it today or it's going to be gone forever. <laughs> it's like <laughs> that's that's pure honesty. And yeah, yeah and- does she have a right to take his money for that wishy-washy answer? Not really. But again, she's being honest. She's being truthful. Yeah, I think that's another. That's a point another character make pra- makes pragmatically. Like, hey, your bike's probably going to go to a sh- chop shop. We have to go here and get it immediately. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's gone forever. Exactly. Like he literally. And again, it adds immediacy to the story. He literally has like less than twenty four hours to find his bike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. We should also explain it takes place on a Sunday. His day off, and so. Um, yeah, I. I don't know. This time, I, I felt a little cynical, maybe, and just because. Like, every character is, like, literally a raindrop on a hurricane. (laughs) And so you can kind of see how everybody is is suffering and unexceptional. I could see how, I don't know whether the director or story writers feel this way, but it's like there is no point in kind of reaching a higher power when, you know, we feel like society and and life is just grinding us into their boot heels or something (laughs) like that, you know. So I, I don't know. I approached it, like, you know, kind of cynically and, like, you know, maybe maybe it doesn't have the best view of this kind of faith. Again, maybe it. You're right. Maybe it treats this soothsayer as a little, you know, a little ambiguously in her advice. Um, mm-hmm. However, there's part of me that does think that yes, she is a charlatan. Mm. <laughs> yes, she is bilking these poor people out of their money. Yeah, she's um, found her own way to get by. Yeah. Same with the Catholic Church. I mean, they they or not, not not the big you know broad cap, capital C Catholic Church, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, this church when he's when he's battering this poor old man, um, they I don't think I don't think they they make any attempt to like calm him down or something. I think they want to like kick him out immediately or something like that. So yeah, I mean, but you know, I mean, I, <laughs> granted he is being he is really disturbing the service, so I can understand <laughs> exactly. And it's not like they don't demonstrate some patience. Like initially, they're kind of like, uh, do you mind like keeping it down? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, or I, you know, the the lunch they're serving again. It's not they're they're doing the best that they can as in terms of being a service to the community. Yeah, and I think and I think it does come out, you know. But that's very generously. That's a very generous portrait of this church here. Yeah, but that's the brilliance of this movie is everyone's doing the best that they can. So again, mm-hmm. there are no true villains of the piece. Even the bicycle thief, quote unquote, himself. Again, he did it because he's trying to get by too. And again, mm-hmm. I don't think that this movie has anything good or bad to say about church or society or anything like that because again it's a story about everyone just trying to get by and that leads us into the finale which (laughs) is one of the most harrowing scenes i think i can imagine (laughs) yeah we should probably see uh john did you anticipate it would wind up at this place (laughs) um a little bit again it's called bicycle (laughs) a little bit come on it's called bicycle thieves so (laughs) no you knew you knew he was going to make some some moral compromise this character's led to some moral compromises already Mm -hmm. so you kind of have to know that yes he's going to have to wind up resorting to some criminal activity, maybe stealing a bike himself. But again, is he justified? Potentially. Because again, <laughs> like well, he needs this bike to feed his family. And he's hmm. already had his bike stolen. Doesn't he have kind of the right to steal another bike? Like I, where's well, the moral I wouldn't high call ground? it the right. I no, I wouldn't call it the right, but you're right. With our with the empathy that the movie has elicited for him, we can kind of put ourselves in his shoes and, mm-hmm. and see that he, that yes, he's. I can understand him being driven to this terrible choice. Mm-hmm. And I do love the way that scene is shot because again, it's a close up of his face, looking at everyone kind of coming out of a soccer game and getting all their bikes and taking off. And then we turn around to a wide shot, and he sees a lowly bike sitting alone <laughs> next to a door again mirroring one of the earlier scenes where again this bike is unattended it's just waiting to get stolen and again like it cuts back and forth like at least five times and every single time i'm like he could do it maybe he maybe he won't do it maybe he will do it <laughs> well i think that's a credit to the actor limberto megarine Mega, 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 megarani megatron because, his last name is megatron yes megatron 
<laughs> well, again, it's an amazing credit to him because it's it's kind of the most obvious choice he can make. He's kind of pacing back and forth, and we cut between him, you know, between making the right decision and the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 still like the most obvious filmmaking choice you can make. However, it is so compelling, and you are like literally like ripping yourself in half, like, oh no, don't do it, Antonio. <laughs> But he has to feed his family. I know exactly, and so yeah, it, it does. Even though it's going, even though yeah, it is the movie's very allegorical, and you kind of know where it's going. It's so effective in bringing out the emotion of this moment. Um, Again, it's just a credit to the greatness of this movie. Yes, it's an absolutely. And fantastic so I'm, movie. I'm happy to hear you you loved it as much as I did. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic, not just film. this moment, but the movie movie itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's and it, uh, and but unfortunately, it's yeah. not dispelling my notion that all European films are absolute misery guts <laughs> who just want well, to wallow get... in human suffering. And yeah, well, actually, speaking of which, we should probably get to the resolution because mm-hmm. I think of the stereotypical European film you're talking about. Um, he does get caught mm-hmm. in the act of this theft. Um, one thing I couldn't believe. Well, <laughs> we see earlier that th- there are multiple bicycle thieves because Antonio gets his bike stolen and there are other people kind of running interference. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah. And here he has to steal it himself and um, he gets caught. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it, if we followed the stereotypical path of what you what you envision a miserable, <laughs> a misery guts <laughs> European film to be, he'd get taken off to prison and his son would be left alone in this crowded courtyard or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, instead, instead a, a character takes grace on him, he doesn't press charges, and... Well, the key thing and, that happens before that is, again, his son has been with him the whole day, and what happens is he's like, uh, why don't you go home a little early, kid? I think, uh, I think I'm gonna go somewhere else. I'm gonna go run mm-hmm. an errand. Basically, he doesn't yeah. want his son to see him steal this bike. Yeah, uh, his son obviously doesn't make it to the bus in time, and he does see his father. Well, his son, his son knows what's up. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, his son. I, I should say that. that's another great quality of Enzo, is that he is pretty savvy, mm-hmm. in that um, I think I think at one point, early, very early in the film, uh, he gets cheated by the, or you know, he gets he doesn't get his full money back on his when he pawns his bike, mm-hmm. or there's some damage to his bike, and his son's like, well, you should have complained, and we see how proactive Enzo is. Exactly. Um, which is nice instead of you know maybe what you expect you know the kid to be completely innocent completely naive just this waif or something like that Mm -hmm. and so uh bruno ends up seeing his father get caught and again this crowd gathers around him they're about to beat him up but then you know bruno walks up and everyone sees that this is his son and they kind of see where this man was coming from stealing this bike and they're like all right get out of here go on And uh, they just kind of walk away, I guess. Again, ambiguity. Oh, that's, that, that's more, yeah, that's more indicative of the <laughs> European films that I've seen. Okay. <laughs> that's how every Darb Den Brothers movie ends. Like, they, they just walk away. <laughs> they just walk away. Yeah. But still, you feel the gravity of the situation because they both have, have tears in their eyes, particularly, yeah, Antonio. Antonio in this moment, like again, he can't he can't hold it back, mm-hmm. and he's holding his son his his son's hand and. Again, it's just another brilliant moment from a brilliant performance from a brilliant, from a brilliant film. Mm-hmm. Yes, I completely concur. Bella roba che insegnato figlio. Manco la vergogna. Sei fortunato che hai trovato quello lì, ma se era per mettere ci portavo dentro. Vattene a casa che ti ha detto bene. Va, va, tira, tira. È meglio che te ne vai, va. Lo ringrazio a Dio, va. Manna.
So, again, this wound up on a list from the British Film Institute of uh, 100 films you have to see before the age of 14. So we're 16 years too late, but we did it, John. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. What else is on this list? I must know. Well, I thankfully I have it here in front of me. Oh, um, going in alphabetical order. Um, the classic Adventures of Robin Hood. <laughs> okay. Starring, yeah, shoot, what's his name? Errol Flynn? I, I just blinked it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, so they're all the old, classic. fuddy-duddy, black-and-white movies. Gross. Well, no. Here's 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 one I've recommended before. Mm-hmm. Um, Au revoir les enfants by the uh, director of My Dinner with Andre, Louis Malle, based mm. on his personal experiences. Um, Where does Boss Baby land on the list? I, <laughs> surprisingly, it doesn't, John. What? <laughs> I'll tell you what does is Billy Elliot. So oh. maybe they were trying to fit in some contemporary British films with you. <laughs> Classic Brits. Oh, yeah. this movie is very important to eyesight. <laughs> this will make a brilliant musical one day. <laughs> Billy Elliot and also Sherlock Gnomes. These are the yeah. important films all children must see. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get to the, let's get to the controversial ones, John. Edward Scissorhands. Mm, fair. But it oh, fair. I, what? It's not a great movie, but it's good enough for kids, I suppose. Okay, yeah, for uh, about an outcast, I guess. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. can see. Mm-hmm. I can see what they're trying to say. To Again, very uh, like, yeah, very fably. So it's like I, I can't get offended by that movie because again, yeah. I have no hard feelings about it either way. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this one not controversial for its quality, but more its subject matter. The Night of the Hunter. Hmm. Where Roger, Roger, uh, Roger, <laughs> where Robert Meacham uh, hunts after two kids. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. We'll mm. have to revisit that for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Outsiders. I don't. Th- I don't know if anybody regards mm. that as a classic. Other than I'd say that's more of know. a sixteen-year-old movie, not a fourteen-year-old. Yeah. Fourteen's a little young. I don't. Know, yeah. Read the book or whatever. It's, yeah, unless you're book too is, lazy. Book is better. <laughs> Stay gold, Pony Boy. Stay gold. Yep. And um, probably the most controversial for us, John. You know what else is on this list? What? Jacques Tati's Playtime. Ew, gross. Yeah. Ew. <laughs> Where's I guess that's to put that's to put your fourteen year old to bed, really. <laughs> Ugh, gross. <laughs> Just put I in a Mr. Playtime. Bean episode. <laughs> Ouch, John. That uh, that burnt me. Ow. <laughs> <laughs> no Star Wars, but Playtime. Ugh, gross. Is this a? There is no Star Wars here. What the hell? It's a, it's a list for uh, to show your fourteen year old if you want to be the most insufferable snob on the planet. I th- yes, there are two, not one, but two Hayao Miyazaki films. Oh jeez, <laughs> get this list out of my face. Yeah, I'm Gross. sorry, BFI. You're, you're screwing up. Yeah, Ugh. can't can't get these, <laughs> can't get those lottery funds anymore. <laughs> Did, has have I ever done like a mo- like a list for like classic children's movies? Um, great question. I don't think they ever have done one for... Well, they would call it, like, family movies. I guess that's true, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe... I don't know. I think that was kind of... That was kind of a proviso for their Cheers. You remember that Cheers countdown? Oh, yeah. That was supposed to be the most inspirational movies? Those had really a kind of family-friendly tenor. Okay. I'm trying to think of, like, Black Beauty and Chariots of Fire and... Mm -hmm. Well, actually, Chariots of Fire is a British film, so it wouldn't be on there, but... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Lord of the Rings was on there. Is it? Uh, well, it was one of the like the revised one. Remember, they came back like ten years later. Yeah, that added, like, yeah that was movies. on the <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was on their greatest hundred greatest of all time. Like they stuck Psycho on that list. You know, this was in terms of Cheers, though. I don't think it was on the okay. The, yeah, again, it, this was segregated for. Well, no, I was just movies. wondering because it's like, does Lord of the Rings count as an American production? Yes, it does. I guess. Okay. I mean, all right. Fair yeah. point. All right. I was just yeah. curious because I don't know. Again, just, movies are so global nowadays. It's like, I know. How do you really consider a movie Italian slash American these days? I mean, does you "Call know. Me by Your Name" count as Italian? Because it's in English. <laughs> it's populated by Americans. Oh wait, is yeah, Army Hammer directed? But is Army Hammer British? No, he's he's American. Oh, he's in America. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. phew. All right, <laughs> we got one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think Tim- Timothy Chalamet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got a French name, but I think he's American. Okay. Uh, it's the question mark. Right, question. Uh, we clearly we're we're very well read in these in these matters. Absolutely. It's not like we Absolutely. have a magic box that we can just call all information to us from. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's leave a little mystery we'll in life, it. guys. Speaking of mystery, I'm sure everyone's wondering, <laughs> guys, what do you have for spotlight? Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. The Cloverfield Paradox. Let's talk about it right now. <laughs> I like this is like it, it really is that bad. It's like best of the worst material. <laughs> wow, okay. It's just there's no logic to it. 
it's you can tell all the reshoots were like how do we make this part of a cloverfield thing like it's so bad it's really bad oh, damn. there's no internal logic to it it's just it's garbage it's like okay. they dumped it for a very specific reason it does not work <laughs> okay <laughs> sorry daniel Bruhl and <laughs> david aiello and mm-hmm. everybody else who was forced to work on it i apologize i know hey they got paid yeah well john let's let's talk about another quality film that came out recently yes let's give a toast to the film that has the most uh stuff that we roast and uh, it's the post (laughs) steven spielberg's the post (laughs) greg is a professional writer and he is available for freelance work so if you want to reach out to him please email us at aspiring snobs at (laughs) gmail.com hey you know that idiot who was stumbling over um (laughs) things that rhymed with post Let's hire him. <laughs> but yes, this is this is be quickly becoming Oscars catch up month. Yes, and so we're catching we're catching up first with uh, this movie that was uh, conceived in literally about three months and then put out for Oscar season. Because John, it is important. Damn it, this is an important movie. Capital I about, important. It's about yes, the, this is about the capital F First Amendment. <laughs> this is about capital F freedom of the capital P press. <laughs> yes. This is important. I'm slamming the desk right now. <laughs> I mean, normally, like, part of me wanted to hate this movie for how histrionic it was, but I was so entertained I couldn't. <laughs> I was like, yay! Well, it's, well, yeah, it's funny you say histrionic, because this is part of uh, Steven Spielberg's trilogy. Um, he's entering his grandpa phase, and now just does movies for old fogies. <laughs> about uh diplomacy and history and you know people in in dimly lit rooms where the sun is apparently only four feet outside (laughs) they do walk off into the sunset at the end of this movie (laughs) yeah they literally they do (laughs) but yes it started with lincoln moved on to bridge of spies and now it's the post Mm -hmm. Uh, these kind of these kind of tough diplomatic situations that people have to work through uh but america comes out on top and in this case it's the washington post decision to publish the Pentagon Papers, the controversial uh, study behind the reason uh, behind the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Proving that uh, America, has, the government has been lying to America about how well the war has been going. Lied. And there's no chance that they can ever win. No. <laughs> but it, the war would go on for another four years. <laughs> because, hell damn, well, we're going to win. <laughs> Thank God we don't have any kind of analogs for this at the, at the current period. No, but, of course <laughs> not. Yeah. Vietnam was a one and done deal. Yep. <laughs> so you you found it entertaining. Mm-hmm. I I did too. I, I again I wanted to go in you know kind of dismissive of it because I I know its production history. This was literally thrown together in, in spite of a top flight cast and a top flight director. This movie was literally thrown together as a response to President Trump's attacks against the press mm-hmm. and his <laughs> and his um let's say uh, behavior that kind of. Th- Sort of follows um, President Nixon, <laughs> just a wee bit, just a wee yeah, bit. just I mean, just, I mean just, come on. <laughs> I mean, there are times when you can. I mean, the movie is very well made. You can't tell that it was kind of thrown together in three months, except for maybe the acting, which is a little broad. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely tell. Like a lot of things were done in in one take. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, like one scene. It's the first scene with Tom Hanks, who's playing Ben Bradley. Mm-hmm. And Meryl Streep was playing Catherine Graham. Mm-hmm. It's their first scene together because they meet in a restaurant, mm-hmm. and then the camera just kind of sits there, and it's the two of them in a two shot, and it goes on for about four minutes. <laughs> and I'm sure the idea was like, wow, these two titans of cinema are now on screen together for the first time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the idea was, oh, this will obviously compel American, uh, this will obviously compel audiences for four minutes. And no, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing too about that shot is it's clearly just Spielberg showing off because it's a tracking shot of her going through the restaurant, and it's clearly like on rails, and it's like it's so needless. Like the camera's like swinging around throughout this restaurant, like he's Mr. Scorsese or something, and it's like, come on. <laughs> well, no, I, I again, I didn't object to that. What I objected is to like literally just sits there with them at this table for the next four minutes mm, or something, okay. or, or what feels like an hour. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, are we gonna cut away at some point? Yeah, because Spielberg does do that very well in terms of you know putting like multiple shots in a single take or something like that, or fluid mo- camera movements, or, but. Yeah, there, uh, there's not enough of it there. However, I was still kind of compelled by it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. again, like going back to what I was saying about the level of acting, obviously you've got Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, but you think about movies like uh, the other contemporary, obviously, to this movie is Spotlight, which we bring mm-hmm. up every episode. Um, <laughs> Indeed we do. Uh, like, 
you can tell, and again, they've made it a very clear point, it's like these actors studied the real people that they were playing, and they tried to get their mannerisms and their tones and everything exactly right. I don't really get that they, the actors really had that much time to prepare and because Tom Hanks is giving like this horrible accent, like this bad like <laughs> community theater, like, eh, well, you see, I'm the editor of this paper, and get me Spider Man. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far, like, because because uh, the real Ben Bradley we know is is a is a sleaze sort of okay, <laughs> and a chain smoking, you know, like a genuine newspaper man, and instead, you know, Tom Hanks is America's uncle. Like, yeah, you, know, <laughs> you can't have somebody with the innate decency of Hanks playing, you know. Ben Bradley, especially when in all the President's Men, he's played so perfectly by Jason Robarbs. Yeah, of course, <laughs> it's like yeah, like why even try to top it, you know? Mm-hmm. But you know, he gives it he gives it his best, I guess. And yeah, again, it's still admirable. The other weak link in that movie is when they when they do try to, when they do like literally spell out the the stakes and are like, <laughs> I think at one point he says like, no, this is a First Amendment issue, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> um, so. That I that I didn't like so much. What I did like though is the few times where it does kind of illuminate history. Like, I've, I've initially I was bored because the, the first kind of plot point is that Catherine Graham has inherited this paper. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still kind of a, a local oddity, even though it does it, it is in the capital of the most powerful nation in the world. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know why it's tre- why it's treated as you know just some just some local rag. But no, and yeah, and it's hard to kind of root for these people when they're obviously such wealthy socialites. It's like, yeah. oh, oh, don't you feel bad? She's a woman that's still a freaking millionaire who's <laughs> <laughs> so in these extravagant parties, and everybody loves her. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, poor her. <laughs> yeah. And so, the, well, the, and the movie starts, like, literally about the initial public offering of the paper. They're going to put it up for sale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, well, why does, why does this matter? And it doesn't until, like, come to later when, like, okay, our, our paper's literally threatened. Like, can we publish this potentially incendiary study mm-hmm. um, and not and, and potentially not have a paper anymore? Like, can we, like, let's think about the future. Like, can, can we do, like, good work in the future, for instance? Exactly. And they make it the point. It's so, like you're risking everyone's jobs here by doing this. It's like, yeah. are you really willing to hang your principles on that? Fine, lady. Yes. So, again, <laughs> and I, the movie very, is very unsubtle, but I think that's more of a feature, not a bug. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. And it, speaking particularly to uh, Catherine, <laughs> Meryl Streep's performance as Catherine Graham, mm-hmm. again, histrionic, like Meryl Streep hasn't played a real person in about 30 years at this point. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. She's always histrionic. Uh, but I do like those moments when she has to kind of decide the fate of the, editor- the editorial kind of bent of the paper, whether they are going to publish a incendiary study, or, you know, she has to consider the future of the paper and the shareholders and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so... I, I do like the level of, or the lack of confidence that she actually projects at that point, mm-hmm. because in every other performance that we see, like, again, she whether she, it's um, in The Devil Wars Prada or The Iron Lady, she has to be, like, a leader, a, a leader in a man's world, and here it's, it's clear that she's not equipped for that. Yeah. Um, and so in those, in those few moments where she does kind of, like, put her foot down and assert herself in that kind of... Um, mild socialite way <laughs> i i found it i found it very compelling um and again it leads to the best line of the movie again you'll love it now i'm going to bed <laughs> well and then the second best line which is after the smoke is cleared and after you know the supreme court case has been settled and they can actually mm-hmm. publish these papers she you know her and tom hanks are walking off into the sunset she goes i couldn't live through this again and then what's the very next scene the watergate burglary <laughs> The Watergate burglary. Um, <laughs> Officer Nick Fury comes in and says, like, you know, <laughs> we're setting up the cinema- the post-cinematic universe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, straight into, uh, yeah, just a, a 40-year-old sequel for <laughs> All the President's Men. Or, sorry, a 40-year-old prequel <laughs> yeah, for All the President's Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then later we'll get that Daniel Ellsberg biopic. And, uh, I thought it was weird. A Robert McNamara biopic, and then they'll all come together at... Uh, I don't know, a, a, a Smother a Smothers Brothers, you know, episode or something the, like that. The, the Steel Dossier. That's where this all heading up. To. The movie about the Steel <laughs> Dossier. Yeah, it'll come to a. Yeah, it'll it'll go to the Steel Dossier movie, and that movie will end. Um, comrade, <laughs> I am, I am in this. I am looking at surveillance video. <laughs> there is big fat man with bad hair and two women on bed <laughs> doing something I cannot speak of. <laughs> Putin is like the Thanos of the series. <laughs> Hey, he's bald too, so yeah, it works. <laughs> just give him a scary helmet. Yep. 
maybe maybe my problem with the acting is with the post is that there's it's it's got that problem of too many character actors. Oh, that's true. The movie's stocked with again. I think everybody kind of knew the imp- the importance capital I of this movie. Yeah, exactly. So. And everyone's like jumping aboard. Yeah, so you get, <laughs> yeah. Like, they immediately dropped everything and and joined the movie. Um, I think in particular the the actress who gets the most short shrift is Sarah Paulson as Bren Badley's wife. <laughs> mm, I guess, but again, like. like I, <laughs> It's it's annoying when you stock this many like actors in this kind of roles because it's like every time she's on screen I don't see the wife I just see Sarah Paulson I don't see true, uh, yeah. Graham's daughter I see Allison Brie you know yeah I don't see the don't reporter see... I see Bob Odenkirk and David Cross yeah <laughs> you don't see the lawyers you see uh, Gabe from The Office and Todd from Breaking <laughs> there you go <laughs> although I did like I I do think. In the smaller roles, they do kind of sink into they do sink into those roles. Like um, uh, Bob Odenkirk as that reporter. Mm-hmm. Like I did, I did really buy that. Or there's kind of his desperation. Or there's a character who's actually kind of like moving in the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the problem with all these like kind of um, this trilogy of you know of uh, of period pieces that uh, Spielberg has done is that it is just kind of people sitting in rooms. At least like he's a shoe leather reporter, you know, boots on the ground, actually, you know, trying to break the story mm-hmm. at the very least. And so. I did like that, and so my fa- my favorite actual scene is between him and the lawyer, played by Jesse Plemons, mm-hmm. again Todd from <laughs> Todd from Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. <laughs> and again it does bring up the implication of like you know do you have the same source and like can can the court literally pull this injunction and stop our paper? Because mm-hmm. that that feels like a real climax, like you know it's it feels like we've made the decision to go ahead and you know capital I important decision on the capital F First Amendment, you know, but yeah. instead like. Oh, like oh no! This this is really this is really this, the decision or the distinction to be made. Well, I know it's also a great moment because again, these characters up until this point have been so self righteous; they haven't questioned themselves true, yeah. until they're faced with this, and it's like oh shit! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I like it when characters have to be kind of like faced with their own consequences. Yeah, well, it's a moment of, and this is where we'll talk about late Steven Spielberg, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's still got a lot of movies in him, I think. But uh, um, Ready Player kind of... One coming out in two months. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Uh, the kind of like lack of challenge, sort of. Yeah. And this is a scene that that kind of like challenges that notion, or like you said, that self-importance of you know preserving preserving the freedom of the press, mm-hmm. like you know, and it actually challenges that. Again, I don't know why in 2005 Spielberg kind of turned that challenging you know switch off. <laughs> you know, after move after two movies I really like, uh, War of the Worlds and Munich, mm-hmm. like why he just shut that off and just became a grandpa, you know. <laughs> I mean, I mean that literally. Like that's that's kind of the the career transition he made because he literally became a grandpa between Munich and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and so that might that might explain a little transition in quality too. You know, it also makes that trans it proves that transition. Money. He needs that money. <laughs> he can't make a hit anymore. He can't make a hit with movies about you know Germans blowing shit up. <laughs> That's but not Germans, John. No, they're Jews. Oh, right. Jews blowing shit up. Of course, Jews. Jews cause all war, wars in the world. Got it. Uh, Spielberg can still make. Are you kidding me? He can't get a EP credit on another Transformers movie and not make his money that way. Come on. He can't live off the residuals for Jaws the rest of his life. Come on. Of course he can. Everybody could. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's the grift, uh, Antonio. It's not stealing bicycles <laughs> and hanging up posters. It's getting points on Jaws and Jaws 2 and Jaws 3 3D <laughs> and Jaws 4 The Revenge. All American movie classics. Yes. And uh, again, five Transformers movies? Mm. Come on, Antonio. Come on. Let's get that let's get that cheddar. I end up spin-off Bumblebee movie we have to look forward to. Let's get let's yeah, sorry. Let's not get that cheddar. Let's get that mozzarella. Mm. <laughs> let's get that Telegio. Drunk off white wine. Hell yeah. Well, I think this has been a successful episode. Absolutely. John, you were worried. Like, what would we have to say about one of the greatest movies of all time? You're absolutely right. The Post. <laughs> <laughs> no, The Post is, is, is fine, I think. I, again, I get, kind of give it a, a thumbs up. Yeah, <laughs> again. Uh, you know, Maybe you don't have to rush out to the theater to see it, but yeah, if you feel obligated before they announce the Oscars in a month or so, mm-hmm. you know, go ahead. Yeah, check it out. It's a, get, it's a, it's a good red, bo- red box rental. <laughs> sure. Yep. Well, maybe maybe until the freedom of the press is revoked, <laughs> and then we can look back and like, oh, look what we had. Yeah, <laughs> enjoy your freedom of speech now, kiddos. Speaking of freedom of speech, you can enjoy your freedom of speech by reaching out to us on Facebook and Twitter 
exercise your First Amendment rights mm-hmm. by sending us an email at aspiringsnobs at gmail.com with your recommendations, your thoughts on the movies that we talk about. We want to hear your opinions as well. Mm-hmm. Questions, and thoughts, maybe... let us know. Absolutely. And if you're feeling cagey, why don't you head on over to your podcast service of choice and give us a review, a subscription, and a recommendation. Go for it. Yes. The, pow- the power is in your hands. I know. John, I'm getting verklempt. I'm getting a little hot under the collar right now. Okay. My heart is pounding. <laughs> and and th- you want to know why? It's actually the movie we're going to talk about next week. Oh, boy. Why don't you tease yeah. them, Greg? Well, <laughs> it's another modern classic mm-hmm. from the year 2000. Ooh. <laughs> In celebration of Valentine's Day, we'll be looking at the Wong Kar Wai film, In the Mood for Love. Mm-hmm. So get those candles lit. I'll bring the bouquet, mm. and Greg will bring the chocolates. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've got the hotel room all uh, reserved and everything. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a sensual evening. Mm. <laughs> that was the least sexy mmm you could have given. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. I just... <laughs> mm. I, I, this may stun some people. But um, my romantic life is uh, it's a little dormant at the moment. <laughs> oh, Greg. I know, yeah, I know. It's I, I exude sexuality when I talk on the podcast. However, <laughs> off air, it's it's not the same. You know. Well, Greg, so. you're gonna get some pointers by watching this movie. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll I'll see how I'll see how Tony Lung uh, courts Maggie Chung. I mean, it's no How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days, <laughs> which is you know at least that movie is like instructional. But you know, I'm sure you can learn mm-hmm. uh, pick up a few things from this movie. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, it's possible that a lot of audiences have never heard of In the Mood for Love, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a Hong Kong film from to the year 2000. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, let's explain that it's uh, it's the kind of, uh, it's the antecedent, it's the prototype for one of our favorite movies of the last couple of years, uh, Moonlight. Ooh, yes. Different time periods. Inspired. Let's go. Yes. Yeah, so let's do it. Let's do it, gang. Yep. So why don't you join us next week? And until next time, keep aspiring. Keep aspiring.